0: One thing that they most need, that is forgiveness. And as they hear even his claims upon their own life to what true discipleship looks like, Mark shows us that there can be no neutrality when it comes to the response to Jesus. You know, there's a position many like to take that kind of a middling, uncommitted position that perhaps Jesus was a good teacher a good prophet, led in a moral and ethical way, but he was not God. This is an untenable position. It makes no sense. I, of course, at this point, have to quote C.S. Lewis, who in his work on the case for Christ says this off-quoted phrase. If you just listen here as we go through this paragraph, Speaking of Jesus and how we will respond to him, he says, I'm trying, to hear, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about him. What is that? To say I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we mustn't say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him, his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. I would say Mark is driving a similar point home to us as, as one person after another encounters Jesus. There is no middling ground. We started with the crowd. At this point, they're, they're trying to walk that middling ground perhaps, but the closer we get to the cross, we will see that a decision must need to be made how they view Jesus. From there, we moved on to the, the teachers, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. They feel threatened by Jesus. That he's coming in and he's he's upending their religious structure that gives them a measure of power that feeds their egos. They're unwilling to admit that they have a need. So they're feeling defensive and they're looking now to destroy Jesus. We saw as Jesus then interacted with the demons. They confess who he is. They know who he is, but only as an enemy and an adversary and as a, a trying to overthrow Him. We'll see two more stories today that again show us that as we are confronted with Jesus, there is no neutrality. A decision needs to be made. As Mark makes this point, I want you to see your face in the crowd here. As ones who I'm assuming want to be true disciples of the Lord and yet at times probably find ourselves slipping and faltering into Jesus Christ being a good moral helpful teacher but not one who has a claim on my life not one who I'm going to reorganize and restructure my life around his claims to be with him and to be sent out by him or perhaps you have more of an adversarial response to the Lord I encourage you, listen today, be challenged, be encouraged. What is your response to Jesus? Our text today, we're really covering verses 20 through the end of chapter 3. It would be a bit like if you're watching maybe a split screen TV. You have two kind of similar things, a baseball game here and a baseball game here or whatever it is you're watching You have two things running and Mark does a little bit of that for us, almost like a split screen here where he moves to his family and he starts talking about his family and their response to him. Then he jumps over to the religious leaders and their response to him, but he's going to come back to the family and and the family's response to him. And so we see these things as Mark intends us to with sort of side by side, parallel (coughs) accounts of things happening, even though the response is different. So you come to verse 20 to 22 and says, Then he went home, Jesus returning, not to a home he owned, most likely Peter's family that we encountered earlier in Mark. He went home and a crowd gathered again, as always seems to follow him. <clears throat> they clambered in so much that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. His family thinks he's lost it. <laughs> he's making sort of ridiculous claims and he's gaining more and more notoriety and the more and more notoriety that he gets, he's also getting more and more heat from the religious leaders. And his family is feeling incredibly uncomfortable about it. They don't recognize who his true identity and the claims that he is making yet. And so as C.S. Lewis points us to, they identify him as... He's going crazy. He's lost his mind. He's believing the hype around him. It might be well-intentioned. They're concerned about him. They care for him and they think, man, there's a, he's not mentally well here. He's putting himself in a lot of danger. He's putting us into some tricky positions here. But no matter what the motive was, they see Jesus and they think he is a fanatic. He, he's going a little crazy here. He needs to calm down. You know, I think there is a quick application to be made. It doesn't take much commitment to Jesus for others to think you're being a little fanatical about it. You know, that you would reorganize a schedule, that you would prioritize in your finances, Jesus, can seem very fanatical to others. Again, if there wants to be a pretend middling position where people can appreciate Jesus and whatever, but he's going to have no claim on their lives, and the way you act that, man, you're talking about him, you, you organize your life about him, you would skip things for church, you would, it just feels a little fanatical. <laughs> and the call to discipleship is a little fanatical. That when he says, come, you follow him, You're with him, you go on mission for him, as we saw earlier in Mark. Jesus faces that response. But as he moves on to the religious leaders, he faces even an uglier response. If you would, you see there in verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons Beelzebub there the related to the god Baal who is the overseer of the demons as it were they are all but calling Jesus not just possessed but insinuating Satan himself as a ruler of the demons that this power comes from darkness we saw that earlier as he casts out the demons and he, he quiets them immediately because there's this association or they're trying to have some sort of authority over him by naming his name. And here he's being accused of it, that, that it is by the power of Satan or that, that he is, is evil itself. And by that power, he's casting out demons. And Jesus is going to answer. First, he gives a very logical answer. You see that there, he says in verse 23, and he called them and said to them in a parable, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. I mean, I think a simple logical argument there. That makes no sense. Why would Satan cast out Satan? It would be like if we were preparing for battle tomorrow morning, and I think, well, just, you know, before we prepare for battle, I'll just pull a surprise attack on my own men and get into it with them. Th- that makes no sense. You're not going to, to try to destroy yourselves. So he kind of logically says, we know that's a, an, an argument that makes no sense. You know, <clears throat> I think here, again, Even in the logical side of the argument, we can see, have you ever shared the gospel with someone or been in a discussion about Christ and they would say, well, if there were just some sort of proof, you know, like if I could say, send down lightning and strike that. If the Lord does it, then I would believe if he would just prove himself. If he would just do something, we kind of put Jesus to the test to prove himself. I think this text right here shows us that faith is not going to be born out of that kind of proof. The leaders have seen him healing a paralytic person. They have seen him casting out demons. They have seen him walk up to someone and tell them their sins are forgiven and then testify that indeed they were forgiven because he raised that person to walk out on healthy legs. He's done miracle after miracle. Testimony of it, of his power, is going around. And yet, the political leaders, the religious leaders, the people don't look at him and say, Well, he proved it. I have faith now. What they do is they attack the source of his power. I'm still not going to believe it. Faith is born out of God's gracious work in our life. Him calling us to himself and us coming. It initiates with God. It initiates with his grace. And just because someone might say, well, Jesus hasn't proved himself to me, if he did prove himself to them, they would still not respond in faith. We see that there with the religious leaders. So Jesus responds with that logical argument, and then he continues with a bit more of a theological argument. Verse 27, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Who are our characters in this short little parable? The strong man is Satan. The house is this kingdom that is passing away, the domain of darkness which Jesus is invading. The goods that the strong man has hold of are the souls of captive sinners. And we see evidences of this captivity of these people that Satan has a hold of them through their enslavement to sin, through the possession, demon possession, through disease, through death. All of these are evidences that the strong man in his house has enslaved these goods and they belong to him. And Jesus is saying the only one who can come and plunder that is going to be someone who is Stronger the stronger man comes. The stronger man binds the strong man. Jesus comes and he binds Satan. And he sets free the goods that Satan was enslaving, the souls of captive men, and the evidences of that taking place are the evidences we've seen and casting out demons and healing diseases. Jesus is the strong man. He has come and he has bound Satan. That is part of his work of incarnation. His work to the cross is to defeat the works of Satan. It's the promise all the way back in Genesis 3. We see it spilling over. Here that Jesus has come and as the stronger man, he's not relying on the power of darkness. He's the stronger man who has come and bound Satan. Satan. What proves it is the power that he is showing. He deserves our worship, not to be called darkness. Jesus began the binding work in his beginning of Mark, when, if you remember, John the Baptist announces someone's coming and he is mightier than I am, and he comes with the Holy Spirit. Then, inaugurated into his work, Jesus immediately faces that temptation. And he faces the temptation of Satan and he overcomes it. And we're reflecting back to Adam as he stood facing the temptation and yet succumbed and was enslaved to Satan in that temptation and we find our hope we find our freedom not in how we face the temptation we find that we are free from the enslavement of satan not because we have withstood every single temptation properly because indeed we haven't but our loosing from the bonds of satan come because jesus withstood the temptation perfectly Because He lived an obedient, perfect life. Because He laid down His life and in the cross triumphed over the works of darkness. And in the resurrection proved it. We find our hope in His binding of Satan. We rejoice. We find great hope in that for sure. Then He continues with one more statement. Verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, but whatever blasphemies they utter, sorry, let me begin again. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit, we come to the unpardonable, unpardonable sin. You know, I've heard a lot of discussions where this is kind of lifted out of its context and there begins this discussion about what is the unpardonable sin? And lots of, you know, different options can be given out. I've even known people who have struggled in their assurance of faith thinking, well, in the past they may have committed that unpardonable sin, the one that they won't get forgiveness for. I would say that's a a misunderstanding of what this text is saying. I think a sure sign you have not committed it is the fact you're worried about it. Mark, though he offers little commentary to us, the little comment he does helps us here to see the unpardonable sin, unpardonable sin. Verse 30, so I'll begin in verse 29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Verse 30, and he gives a comment, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. That helps us kind of narrow in. I think if we were to say, here's a very narrow definition of what is being spoken of here that narrow definition is to attribute the spirit anointed and spirit empowered work of Jesus to the power and work of Satan <clears throat> to attribute the spirit anointed and spirit empowered work of Jesus to the power of and work of Satan that's a very narrow definition As you look at other texts, both in the Gospels and some parallel passages, as well as later in the New Testament, I think we can broaden it just a little bit. I would say a definition this way, borrowed this from a commentary, so not original to me. It is a conscious, deliberate, clear, and consistent repudiation of Christ by those who should know better. One more time, a conscious, deliberate, clear, and consistent repudiation of Christ by those who should know better. Let's think on each word just for a, a second. So a conscious. We're not dealing with ignorance here. He's talking to the scribes. They should know better. So when we're talking about <clears throat> this sin, we're, we're not talking about a matter of ignorance, we say deliberate, that is that it's it's not a mistake, it's not done just thoughtlessly or by accident. We say clear. Again, not a matter of doubt, or you just use lazy bad language, or you're struggling with something. We're not even in that realm. And it is consistent. Again, not that in a reaction to something hard, not in a moment or even a long season of difficulty, but a consistent testimony of what? Of repudiation. A stronger word, I think, than rejecting. It's probably why they chose it. Looked it up to reject with disapproval and condemnation, to deny, to oppose. Than one who should know better. Again, Jesus is speaking to the scholars, to the religious leaders. This isn't speaking to some one, just ignorant person. This isn't speaking to someone young or someone seeking, or someone in the midst of struggle and sorrow. So with that, one more time, the definition: a conscious, clear, a conscious, deliberate, clear and consistent repudiation of Christ by those who should know better. And while I want to give a little bit of comfort in saying I'm, you know, none of you have probably ever committed that. And if you're sitting here, it's not some sin in your past that you think, "Uh uh-oh, that one just isn't forgiven. No, God's grace is sufficient to forgive all your sins. I do at the same time want to honor the tone of the text, which isn't comfort, but is warning. The warning is directed to those in the church, to those who know. Hebrews 10 would be a passage to go to look to further on this. But as it speaks to the church, it's those who have come and they have heard the gospel preached. They have sat under the word, they have read the word, and they have a knowledge, an understanding of what the gospel is saying. It's those who perhaps have come and heard prayers, prayed, and offered faithless prayers themselves and have seen answered prayers and yet deny Jesus in the midst of all of it. It's those who have come and maybe experienced the waters of baptism who have come and participated in the table and, and have taken that and yet reject and oppose Christ as they do it. Hebrews 10 has that category and he says that they are trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant. And we know in that context it's, it's not just, oh, the wicked, vile person way out there. He's speaking to the church because he says, the Lord will judge His people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a vengeful God. God will judge His people. He's speaking about those gathered, those who should know better. And so the warning is that it does exist for us. And the one who has heard the word and received the word and and has participated in and been around and exposed to these means of grace and has enjoyed them and yet rejects all of it and says this is not truth. The one who would take what is true and good and beautiful and would flip it upside down and say, no, it is false. It is not good, it's evil. It's not beautiful, it's ugly. And then the other end would, would take what is goes against everything that God has created, goes against the truth that He has proclaimed and say, no, that's good, that's true, that's beautiful. When they call darkness good, darkness light, and light darkness, when they repudiate Christ and they know better, and they do so consistently, there is no forgiveness for that person's sin. The person never acknowledges their need for Christ. Again, there's not a category for someone who... another word of encouragement if you have family friends loved ones you care about that have been in church for a season of time and now have fallen away and are rejecting that truth it's not a word you're saying it's hopeless for them don't worry about it and there's not a category for someone who is coming to God for forgiveness but God's saying no remember you you did the unpardonable sin I'm not saying it's hopeless for them But it is raising our our fervor and heart to pray for that one, to reach out for that one we love and we care for. Because there's eternal consequence for the one who sees and tastes and hears and experiences the means of grace that God has provided for His people and rejects it as false and instead pursues what is evil and says it is good. And God and Jesus Christ here is warning these religious leaders they're in grave danger of doing just that. Attributing his spirit anointed spirit of powered work to Satan. And so he assures us in it it's not true because I have come and I'm the stronger man. You think I need Satan's power? I walked in and I bound him. He is bound now. Yes, he's pictured as a roaring lion walking about, but not outside of the binding control of Jesus Christ. We are not enslaved to Satan because of the work of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in that. He moves then now in our split screen back to the family. Jesus' mother and brothers come they come and standing outside where Jesus is teaching and they call him, it says they sent to him and called him basically they couldn't get to himself, so they got word to him, I I picture this which you've seen a hundred times at the end of a church service where there's like a family and one member of that family is really wanting to leave but then there's one other family, member of the family who's like in conversation and just paying no attention. Like that's kind of what's going on here. Is Jesus, they're like, come on, Jesus, this is get, let's get out of here. You know, doing all the moves, jingling the keys, sending the kid to go tell mom we're getting the car, whatever the, the secret little subtle moves are you do. And so they send word and word gets through and gets up to Jesus as he is teaching Verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? It's harsh. (laughs) I think there is a shock value to it intentionally. We know instinctively, Jesus teaches about marriage he teaches about children he teaches about families and there's a high value in care for them it's not in one swoop he's suddenly undermining the family but what he's doing that he does in other places is making a sort of a shocking statement that is going to draw you in to the costliness of discipleship to the seriousness of sin and the costliness of discipleship You can think of it when he's talking to the rich young ruler and and says, well, if you sell all that you have and give it to the poor, then you can follow me. We don't set that as a new standard for following Christ, as selling everything we own and giving it to the poor. But he's giving a statement that we're meant to absorb the costliness of discipleship. What is going to be the priority? Or even in the Sermon on the Mount about facing sin and chopping off your hand or plucking out your eye. It's better to do that and enter the kingdom maimed. Again, he's not telling us to get out of saw and start sawing away. He's telling us the costliness of discipleship and the seriousness of sin. And so he does this throughout. And He does so in this quick response. Who is my mother and my, my brothers? And so he's highlighting that it, the more important, the more lasting, the more relation, real relationship here is the spiritual one. Over the physical one, over the natural one. And Jesus sets the family in juxtaposition to just covering the disciples, that He's taken these 10 and it says that He has created the 12, or the 12, sorry. He has taken these 12 and He has created the 12. He has made something out of these 12, and we will see that these 12 that He has created will, are serving for His church in symmetry with the 12 tribes. The Old Testament, he's taking these 12 and he will build his church. He's calling them in and there is a spiritual relationship there that takes precedent. And so in the cost of discipleship, he's telling us nothing rises above your allegiance to me. Not even something really great like family. Family. Because you think about it, on this earth we have all kinds of loyalties, family probably being the most noble of those loyalties, but any loyalty that rises above God becomes idolatry. One commentator called it that to elevate the family at the expense of your discipleship, of coming To Christ being with him and going out from him. To elevate the family above that is to commit domestic idolatry. No earthly loyalty can trump our loyalty to Christ. Matthew, as he would say it in chapter 10, verse 37 of Matthew's gospel, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It's possible for us to do that, to make our children idols. Especially, it's hard to say anything negative about family when in a context where it feels like there's always an attack on the nuclear family from culture around us. And yet at the midst of that, if your number one priority above following Christ is the contentment and effect that it will have on your family, your priorities are wrong. Again, i I'm tempted as a pastor to use this then to be like, so you all need to volunteer to come clean. and No, it's, it's not filling out a volunteer chart. It's following after Christ. Setting your priority with him and from that then, those who are your spiritual brothers and sisters, the church. And Jesus heightens again the costliness of following him by <clears throat> Putting before us this family unit, a great, beautiful blessing, and by highlighting, you have to follow me above them. So there's a challenge there, but there's also an encouragement. The encouragement is as you continue, verse 34, and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers probably the twelve disciples for whoever does the will of God he is my brother and sister and mother The encouragement here is that Jesus is our brother Jesus is our brother we are called to elevate him to the first priority in our discipleship in our life but not as a Taskmaster as a brother, as a fellow heir with Christ to the riches of God. He calls us family. Our brother, the one who binds Satan. You know, <clears throat> Mark, as he goes through chapter 2 and now coming into chapter 3, just paints. A beautiful portrait of Jesus again and again. And in doing so, he encourages us in our reaction to Christ, understanding the cost of discipleship, but also the blessing and the joy of it. To understand him as our elder brother who has bound Satan, that the temptation, the challenges you face, <clears throat> It's not that you overcome the strong man on your own. It's that the stronger man has come and bound the strong man, has set you free. So by the time we get to the end of chapter three, we see Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath. We see Jesus as the great physician. We see him as the great disciple. We see him as the savior of the world. We see him as the hope for broken creation. We see him as the stronger man. Now we close and we see him as our elder brother with whom we share an inheritance with the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that each of us would...